This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Don't you want to see where I grew up? Meet my family, my mama. I meet up with that strange college roommate of yours. Take Lynn. Mm-hmm. She has been begging me to come visit her, you know. The universe has spoken. It wants you over there. A clip there from Crazy Rich Asians, a hit at the box office last weekend and notable as the first major Hollywood studio release in 25 years to feature an all-Asian and Asian-American cast. As you described the film in your written review, Crazy Rich Asians is a little bit classic screwball, a little bit Jane Austen comedy of manners, and a little bit something... I'll let you save for the review. All right. Joining us for that crazy rich Asians conversation and this week's film spotting top five is Slash Filmcast host David Chen. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're going a little inside baseball for this week's Film Spotting Top Five, Josh. Top five things we learned from podcasting about movies. What does that mean, and why are we doing this? I hope you have an answer. I hope (laughs) I have an answer before we get to the top five. We were inspired to do this list because of our guest this week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, David Chen, one of the hosts of the long-running Slash Filmcast. It got its start back in 2008. Film spotting dates back to early 2005, so over 13 years for us. We considered several options that would have tied in perfectly with Crazy Rich Asians. We could have gone romantic comedies. We could have gone with meeting the parents movies. But, Josh, you had a good idea. We wanted to do something a little more fun, a little more meaningful with Dave coming on the show. Yeah, he's the perfect guy. He makes me think of you in a lot of ways. Both of you were at the beginning of this movie Mm -hmm. podcasting thing. I've had a chance to meet him before in Seattle, and he knows his stuff when it comes to how to do this thing, this show that we put on. So we settled on a top five about the things we've learned in these past years. Dave, of course, is not only the host of the Slash Filmcast, but host slash producer of a handful of other great shows. Really smart guy. It's almost going to be like a master 
class session here I think we're going to get Slow from him. Slow your roll. We'll okay. see. All I'm right. just talking about our end of it. I'm sure Dave <laughs> is going to be fantastic. We will get to that top five and more later in the show. But we originally got in touch with Dave to get his thoughts on Crazy Rich Asians. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Dave Chen, welcome back to Film Spotting. You've been on before as a guest in various forms, and it's great to have you. Uh, it's an honor to be here, guys. I uh, really appreciate you having me on. Good to have you back, Dave. Yeah, we're excited for your take on the film. We're excited for the top five. But I do want to start by asking you about a great event that you were responsible for over this past weekend. You and your wife bought out a Seattle area screening of Crazy Rich Asians. I guess that probably gives up a little bit where you stand on the film. But what was the origin of that, and how did it go? Well, as you may have already discussed on the show, Crazy Rich Asians is the first film in 25 years since Joy Luck Club to come out of a Hollywood studio, be set in modern times, and have a cast that's pretty much entirely populated by Asians and Asian Americans. And we are often taught to vote with our dollars, to kind of pay for the kinds of stories you want to see on the big screen. But if you're an Asian American, you may only get a few opportunities to do that per century. And so as this movie was coming out and I was reading about how the filmmakers had put a lot of their own reputation and money on the line to make this movie, I thought to myself, like, what am I doing to vote with my dollars, to vote with my time and resources and show Hollywood the kinds of stories that I want to see told. So we kind of hatched this idea to, to host a screening and buy out an entire theater and invite people to go see the movie who might not have otherwise seen it on opening weekend. And I'd say the screening went very well. People had a great time. But yeah, I really appreciate uh, a lot of uh, my podcast listeners for coming out and a lot of our friends and family for coming out. It's a great you know movie to show to a crowd, I would say. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, it went well. What a fantastic idea with a great motivation behind it. With that, let's go ahead and get into our discussion of Crazy Rich Asians. We'll start by hearing a little bit more from the trailer. I met a girl, I fell in love, and I want to marry her. You're Nicholas Young. You're untouchable. But Rachel's not. Have you prepped Rachel to face the wolves? You know I'm back, like I never left. I really admire you. It takes guts coming all the way over here, facing Nick's family. Another day. Another breath. I know this much. You will never be enough. Yo, it's about time someone stood up to Auntie Eleanor. Well, you, not me. Oh, God. She can't know I was over here. I feel glorious, glorious. The day after I saw Crazy Rich Asians, a viral Twitter thread popped up in my timeline. There was no immediate context for it, but I was curious. The eight-tweet thread by Huffington Post Asian Voices editor Kimberly Yam, she's at Kimmy the Pooh on Twitter, begins like this. You're eight years old. Your third grade class orders Chinese food and your father delivers it. You are so excited to see your pops in school. He's your hero. But apparently other kids don't think he's so cool. They laugh at him and mimic his accent. You don't want to be Chinese anymore. Yam offers more dispiriting signposts. You're 16 years old. It's Halloween and two students come to class dressed as Asian tourists. They've taped their eyes back, strapped cameras around their necks, and chucked up peace signs. You feel uncomfortable. When a teacher asks if you find the costumes offensive, you say no. You don't want people thinking you're uptight. You laugh along with everyone else. You don't want to be Chinese anymore. As I progressed to the last tweet chronicling Yam's heritage journey from rejection to acceptance to embrace— I thought to myself, I'm not totally sure what prompted Yem to share, but what a moving and profound companion 
to crazy rich Asians. This is all the rhetorical proof anyone should ever need to understand why representation on screen and in popular culture as a whole matters. Then I read her final remarks. You're 25 years old. You see a movie with an all-Asian cast at a screening, and for some reason, you're crying, and you can't stop. You've never seen a cast like this in Hollywood. Everyone is beautiful. You're so happy you're Chinese. Hashtag crazy rich Asians. Hashtag representation matters. Indeed, the matter of representation has dominated discussion about crazy rich Asians. Director John M. Chu's rom-com based on Kevin Kwan's 2013 novel, which stars Constance Wu as an NYU economics professor who goes with her boyfriend Nick to his best friend's wedding in Singapore. There she discovers that Nick is heir to one of the wealthiest, most respected families in all of China, and that she will have a few rivals challenging her happiness with Nick, including an ex-girlfriend, gold-digging wannabe girlfriends, and Nick's mother, Eleanor, played by one of the all-time great Chinese actresses, Michelle Yeoh. Dave, representation was certainly on your mind walking out of the theater when you saw it for the first time. You tweeted, I watched Crazy Rich Asians tonight. I've been watching movies for decades and reviewing them for many years. Until tonight, I've never seen a film in theaters that felt like it captured how wonderful, diverse, transcendent, lonely, and isolating the Asian American experience is. That you and Kimberly and so many other Asian Americans have had similar experiences is, of course, laudable and valuable. But is representation and its multifaceted depiction of the Asian American experience you hint at enough to make it a rewarding artistic experience? Is it a good film because of what it represents? Or is it a good film because it's a good film? Or maybe the two can't be separated. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think it's a really good question. I would say Crazy Rich Asians is a solid romantic comedy. But for me, it does something so well that it transcends the genre. The casting is great. The tone is fun and breezy, like you'd expect from a really good romantic comedy. But specifically, as an Asian American, what makes this film special is that it's one of the only films that I've seen in my entire life that acknowledges that there's a difference between being Asian and being Asian American. And that's just very special to see on screen. And not only is it referenced on screen, but it is like a critical component of the protagonist's growth throughout the film. So for me, it's very special in that way. Now, romantic comedies are not in my, uh, let's just say if you made a list of my top 10, 20, 30 films, you wouldn't find many romantic comedies on them. Mm -hmm. But for me, because of what this movie does well, because of how it represents certain aspects of the Asian and Asian American experience, it really uh, is a movie that I deeply enjoyed. What did you guys think? I think it's important to note too, Dave, that that doesn't have to be your response just because you share that experience. Because for me, Adam mentioned at the top of our show that there were a couple of touchstones I recognized right away that this has a little bit of the classic Hollywood screwball comedy about the wealthy in it. It's a part Jane Austen novel about the intersection of class and romance. And then the other thing that I think it has quite a bit of is a so-so Matthew McConaughey romantic comedy from the 2000s, you know, which which I've mildly <laughs> enjoyed a few of those. Now, for me, with those connections and that background, the thing that really was enjoyable and fascinating and interesting to me were these cultural distinctives, not because... I saw myself in them, but because I could learn about another culture through them within this romantic comedy genre, it gave it a lot of life and it gave it drama in new ways. There were new character elements for me that haven't been in all of those other traditional rom-coms that I'm familiar with. So even though, you know, I don't share this sort of background, uh, it was that element that did ultimately elevate Crazy Rich Asians for me and made it just 
a good film, a plain old good film. Yeah, I think I'm with both of you on this, and I think you're right on. I think, Dave, you're right on in terms of it being not only a solid romantic comedy, but finding a way to transcend some of the limitations of the genre. And I think that the more specific it is in that dichotomy that you touched on, the better it is. And actually, the more relatable it is even to us as audience members, Josh, because the more authentic it is. I think actually the more ways in, the more I'm invested in, the more I care about the characters, that it doesn't just gloss over those aspects, I think is what makes this such a rewarding film. And I think tying in with that, the acting and the time, as I said, it invests in these characters is another thing that separates it. There are lots of romantic comedies that have winning leads and good supporting casts, but here you've got the venerable Michelle Yeoh playing so against type for me. And I haven't seen a lot of her films, but of course, I only really know her as the, the Hong Kong action star. And I think of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She's playing so against type here that I'm a little bit embarrassed, no, a lot embarrassed to admit that it baffled me the whole movie. I couldn't place her. I was watching her the whole time. I didn't do any you know, pre-research on this movie. And I I'm staring at her going, I know this actress. This is a wonderful actress. Who is this? And of course, when I walked out, I did finally figure it out. But she's playing that character so well in her coldness and kind of seeming dispassion as the mother that you never really until the moment calls for it, feel her to be cruel or less than a caring mother. She is just so physically comfortable and composed as an actress that she doesn't really need to convey what she's feeling with words at all. And there is enough nuance and mystery to her performance, and I think the writing as well, that until the moment calls for it, you never truly know where she stands in her precise feelings towards Rachel. And that's something that I think the movie could have mined that kind of rivalry for a lot of cliche jokes, but it has a larger agenda. And I'll just say, and I know we'll get into it more here, that you do have a really charming lead in Henry Golding, and I think Constance Wu is a bona fide movie star. Cast her in everything after this. That's You're how much that I sold. love this performance, 100%. Okay, well, that's something we will have to get back to. But Dave, what did you think of Yao's performance? I, I'd like to start Yeah, uh, I think Michelle Yeoh is like MVP of this film for me. Uh, I was introduced to her in films such as Super Cop and uh, the 007 film Tomorrow Never Dies. And this, it, it's so interesting to see a woman who can kick ass, am I allowed to say that on, on uh, public radio? Sure, uh, Can completely it. physically dominate anyone else in the room, in any room that she's in in this film, and yet be completely restrained, and not only that, but regal. And I, I thought she really captured this kind of restrained energy and power in this movie because she is luminous, but she's also fearsome. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I thought she captured the role of Eleanor Young beautifully. So definitely my favorite character and performance in the movie. But I also uh, like the entire cast. And one of the things that's refreshing about a movie like Crazy Rich Asians is there is more than one Asian American or Asian character. And so like that you know, no one character needs to do a ton of work as like representing the Asian race. You know what I mean? In many films we see in America, you'll have a diverse cast, but maybe only one Asian character. And typically as a, as a critical viewer, I'm like fixating on that character and, and seeing how that character is representing Chinese people or, or Asian Americans. And in this movie, I just didn't need to think about that because you have this diverse cast and you have all different kinds of characters, some who are wacky, some who are serious, 
And so for me as an Asian American watching this movie, it's just a delight to see how uh, how wonderful this cast was. So as far I almost think Yo is too good in this film in a sense that you said, Dave, you like all the other characters. And I would agree. I think Constance Wu and Henry Golding totally likable. I mean, they, they've got great smiles. They hit their beats. No problems with them. But when they are on the screen with Yo, the chasm is undeniable. Uh, I disagree. And it's, it's simply, think of the scene where she stares down Rachel on the staircase. And again, Constance was good in that scene. She makes it work. It does what it needs to do. But Yo just has to tilt her head. And she's doesn't even need any dialogue there. There's another scene I can't remember exactly, but all she does is let out her breath at a certain moment. And it's giving us so much character, so much emotion. We know everything that's going on in her head through those little things that a great actress like that is capable of. And, and I guess I would have almost the the opposite reaction is as, as enjoyable as uh, the leads were and as much as they serve the story, I don't know that I came out of Crazy Rich Asians saying that I need to see the next Constance Wu or Henry really? Golding film. Yeah, no, that, that surprises me, at least with Wu. I think what you're describing, that chasm, is the chasm between the characters. And because they are written so well and performed so well by both of them, that that divide in the, the weight of their experience is definitely noticeable on screen. It's there in the way it's shot, too. As I recall, Yo is definitely featured in a way where it's got that kind of low angle looking up at her and she's standing over her on the staircase. But I don't think it's a matter of one being lesser than another. I think Yo embodies her character and Wu embodies hers. Nothing's really lacking. Wu is in almost every scene of this film, and she doesn't carry all the emotional weight because the film does a really good job of spreading that around, but she carries the brunt of it, and I think she does it with sophistication and strength, but also vulnerability and humor, and there are a couple moments in this movie that absolutely devastated me, and it wasn't because they were scenes that hit really manipulative emotional beats. They were because of specific choices, and often very restrained choices in otherwise kind of melodramatic scenes that... Wu makes as an actress. She really surprised me in a couple of those scenes, and it really was just subtle expressions, subtle reactions and moments that really provoked a response out of me. So a little bit of a split there, but I do want to talk about the direction of the film. That was another thing that surprised me, and I say that having not seen any of the other films that John M. Chu has directed, and I think, Josh, you have and are maybe even a fan of at least one or two of them. Is that accurate? Well, no, I think he's done, I don't know, Dave, if you know for sure, but two step-up sequels, I, to yeah. my shame, have only seen the original step-up. The up. Streets and so, Step-Up 3. Yeah, okay. So I, I have not seen those, but obviously those involve movement to a great degree. He's also done a Justin yes. Bieber documentary, and I was surprised as well the amount of camera movement and effective camera movement that is in Crazy Rich Asians, whether it's pushing in on a moment of emphasis. I think the wedding sequence is an example of that. For sure. Or even just the conversations where the camera is moving around all these characters, emphasizing that thing you mentioned, Dave, is that there isn't one character bearing all that representation. These are all individuals who share something but don't share everything, and the camera spends its time weaving in among them as they do engage in a lot of what are dialogue scenes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I thought the direction was very strong, and there's a lot of little choices that were made throughout the course of the film, from the set dressing all the way to what songs were chosen for the soundtrack, mm -hmm. uh, that I felt really built this world that he was trying to create, and for me, it, it really worked. 
Yeah, for sure. I think it starts with that fun opening, right, where Nick is spotted by, I guess, an Asian gossip reporter and her texts start this stream of electronic posts that then dart around the globe. And we actually see that visualized and they end up going all the way over to Singapore where Nick's mother is sitting with her friends and then that ends up back at the cafe in the form of a phone call from Nick's mother. It's really, it seems like a ton of time has transpired. It's yeah. actually quite right. jarring, right? In a very clever way. It's, it's a, a great part. It is a delightful gag. Yeah, it is a delightful it, gag. It comes back happens, and yeah. you realize that actually like 30 seconds have passed. That's how fast <laughs> this all has taken place. That sequence is great. And then it does set us up for the wedding sequence you touched on, Josh. And no, we're not spoiling anything. It's not the wedding sequence of the main characters. It's the wedding sequence of the couple they head over to Singapore to support. It's a set piece featuring really exquisite production design and costuming. And I'm saying that as one of those guys now who's been to so many weddings in his life that I really, other than my own kids, I, I'm good if I don't <laughs> attend another. And yet I loved being essentially in the pew with these characters watching this wedding. And it's also, I think, the most blatant example in the movie of a trick that the whole film kind of pulls off, which is it gets to have its FOMO cake and eat it too, right? You've got Rachel, who isn't into this kind of made-for-Instagram materialistic life so many of the other characters in the film are trying to portray themselves as being part of. So we get to kind of feel superior to them via her, even though she's not condescending at all. But she just seems to have her priorities straight, and we side with her. But then we still, as characters like her, get to jet around the world and we get to go to these exotic beaches sure. and the hotels that we never otherwise would, that we would love actually to put on our own Instagram feeds. And we get to participate in a wedding that we'd tell the story of probably once a month for the rest of our lives. So that prompts me <laughs> to ask the question I, I wanted to bring to this. Dave, I'll let you go first. What of all this outrageous lavishness? What were you most jealous of? Because I have my pick. I, when when you said the beaches, I was thinking of the two of them, Nick and his best friend, mm -hmm. on that dock in this gorgeous bay. Like, I would like to be there, but I actually – it's actually the first class cabin that they have mm. on the airplane. Oh, having, totally. Having done a transatlantic flight this summer, that is what I want. How about you, Dave? What, what would you love to have that these characters live with every day? Yeah. That is a great choice. I would say for me, it's uh, private helicopter usage. Oh, you know, that was the, a good gag uh, like, too. Yeah, when you you know when you uh, have flown in enough flights, you just want to be able to get on a helicopter whenever you want, go wherever you want at any time. And that feels really appealing yeah, as to pick yeah, it in the film. Absolutely. Especially, yeah, if you can't actually fly it yourself there, Tom Cruise style. But I, I will point out, too, that I <laughs> Wait, love, what's your pick, Adam? Well, I, I'm with you. I think you nailed it. It's It's got to be the the airplane cabin. Yeah. I mean, that you just see that early in the film and just... I, I didn't know You that never want to fly again. I know. Not that kind of <laughs> extravagance. But I love in that wedding sequence how... It never loses focus on the two leads, the two characters we care about the most, while also still letting the other couple have their moment within it. And it's predominantly or all without dialogue. So everything we convey, all the emotion that we take away from that scene is all within the production. And actually, there's a lot of character development going on within those interactions and the production. But I think that then brings us to the best sequence in the film. I'll say the words Mahjong. I'm not going to give any of the other details away. But again, with very little dialogue, just through performance, through framing, through really subtle action and editing, I think we as viewers understand. I certainly felt like I understood all the emotional nuances the scene is trying to depict and the nuances of the game, even though I've never played it and don't know any of the rules. And I don't think you need to because of Chu's direction and the way he trusts his cast and his audience. 
It's honestly as thrilling for me. Again, I haven't seen a lot of the films. I know some people will say this is heresy, but that sequence is as thrilling as some of the Michelle Yeoh Hong Kong action sequences I've seen. And the characters never move from their chairs. I think it's that well directed. That might be going a little far, but I will say that I don't know how to play poker, but I know a really well done poker scene in the movies. And it's the ones where I understand exactly the things going on that you're talking about. And I did here in this scene as well, even though I have no idea how to play Mahjong either. Yeah. What did you think of that scene, Dave? My parents used to play Mahjong a bunch when I was a kid. And I I still have very vivid memories of them being in our condo in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, inviting some friends over late at night, uh, you know, after our bedtime. I can still, like, see and smell the smoke that was in the air as they rhythmically, you know, moved around those tiles on on, uh, our kitchen table. And for me, what I like about that scene, in addition to the emotional dynamics that you gents have already referenced, is how it captured the feel of the game. You know, that it is not poker. It has the same tension as poker. But there is this tactile nature Mm -hmm. to Mahjong. There is this kind of feel of the places that you play Mahjong that I think the the film captured very well. Well, and a lot of that has to do with the sound design too, right? Because these are tiles. Each move has an accompanying sound with it. And I think the the film captures that and emphasizes that as well. And and yeah, you're right. That's something poker doesn't have, but is a great added element here. So Dave, I would love to get any other closing thoughts. Are there any other aspects of the film that were positive or negative for you that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I opened with was talking about how this is one of the only films that recognizes the difference between like Asian American and the Asian experience. And uh, for for me, that is like the, the crux of the film. It is this idea that Rachel Chu is Asian American and throughout the entire film, that identity is used to degrade her, right? It is used to demean her. It is used to lessen her by characters like Michelle Yeoh's character, Eleanor, and other characters throughout the the film. And the entire movie is about her coming to terms with that identity. And I think like in popular culture in the United States, Asian Americans and and Asians are often, they're all like kind of lumped together. It's like the Asian experience or, or something like that. But really, Asian Americans have a far different experience of what America is than Asians do. You know, if you live in Asia, if you live in China, the way you think about America is way different than the way you think about America if, if you've lived here your entire life as I have. And I just really appreciated and was so grateful that this movie captured that difference. And there's that lovely scene at the beginning of the film, when Rachel Chu's mother, you know, says uh, R- Rachel Chu is very confident that she's going to impress Henry Golding's family when she goes to visit them, and Rachel Chu's mom says she's pretty skeptical about that. You know, uh, Rachel Chu's mother says, you know, you look the same and you can speak the same language, but you know, up here and down here, and she points at her head and at, at her heart, you're not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think as an Asian American, that just struck me on an extremely deep level because really, if you are an Asian American, like you, you only have each other, right, that understand what this experience is. It's not like you can go back home to, in my case, Taiwan, and like everyone knows like what your childhood was like. It's just, it's just completely, vastly different. And so for me, that was what the film did really well that I think is really special. 
Dave, I wanted to jump back real quick to something else you said at the beginning of the review when you were talking about referring to uh, buying out that theater and how that was you saw that as voting with your dollar in support of this film. And I think that actually reflects something in the movie itself, because it struck me that there is a lot of conspicuous consumption going on here. Right. We talked about the extravagance and the wealth on display, but I do think wealth serves an additional purpose in a crucial scene, and that's the prologue we get where we see Eleanor years before Nick at this point is a little boy and they're not being allowed to stay at this luxury hotel in London. And there's a little comeuppance triumphant twist where she reveals, well, actually, my husband just bought this hotel. And in that instance, it's distinctive from what we see in a lot of the rest of the film is because it's economic power being flexed in pursuit of racial equality, right? And and I like how that does echo what's going on with the film itself and what's going on with its success at the box office. It's it's sort of the same thing. So that was a, a nice little temperament of all the conspicuous consumption going on in the movie. And also, I love how it's having this real-world echo now with the success in theaters. Well, I, I love this movie, but uh, at the same time, I think some of the conspicuous consumption, it's it's used to draw the audience in because, of course, it's enjoyable to see how the 1% live. But at the same time, like, I can also understand in today's political environment, it can be extremely off-putting, you know what I mean? Like, sure. to, to see this conspicuous consumption on the screen. And I don't think the movie indicts it in any way. I think you're right that the beginning of the film uh, shows how it can be used for good. But I don't know that the rest of the movie has that much to say about it. So I don't quite give it as much credit as you maybe. But um, but well, I did like that opening scene as you did. I will agree that it doesn't about face from that opening scene in its climax, <laughs> which we won't get into, no. obviously. But uh, uh, there, there is there is a full-throated embrace of yeah. it that is perhaps a little out of character. Yeah, I, I think yes. that's that yes. gets to what I was saying, too, about how it kind of sneaks in the indictment in the form of – Rachel being the character she is and the priorities Mm. that she has. I do love that prologue as well. And I keep wanting to overread it for some reason. I'm sure I'm wrong on this, but the way it emphasizes how the young Nick comes in. Remember, how old must he be there in that scene? Maybe five or six years old? Yeah, it looks like it. And he comes in and he's got mud on his feet because it's raining and he instantly just starts rubbing the mud everywhere. And I almost want to see it as, even at that young age, he's been through this experience enough that he knows how this scene is going to play out <laughs> and he feels like he owns the place already. You know, and I don't I don't think that's where it's going, but uh, like I said, for whatever reason, I just want to overread that scene a bit. Well, let me overread it with you, Adam Kempinar, yes. and say that uh, like my <laughs> overreading of that opening scene is the way Michelle Yeoh's character, Eleanor, handles it, which is just with quiet intensity. You know, there is no outward complaining, there is no making a scene, there is just, please like, let me speak to your manager. And actually, oh, you won't let me speak to your manager. I'm going to take care of this situation myself. And in many ways, certainly, I, I don't know about other people's experiences, but that is certainly how I view my parents who, when they've uh, encountered challenges that society has dealt them, have handled them with uh, their own version of quiet intensity. So Man. that's my overreading. I wish my children felt that way. <laughs> about me and the way I handled any kind of adversity that uh, will not get mentioned in my kids' reflections on me. Adam usually just goes in the corner and madly kicks the mud around on his shoes. (laughs) Crazy Rich Asians is out now in wide release. If you 
you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. The Film Spotting poll is up next, where we'll correct the egregious error that Ethan Hawke has not been mentioned in this episode yet. Then Dave Chen will be back for this week's Film Spotting Top 5, Things We've Learned, podcasting about the movies. Stay with us. Island woman dies, walang makakatigil. Brown, brown woman, rise alamin ang yung ugat. They got nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. Island woman, rise, walang makakatigil. Brown, brown woman, rise alamin ang yung ugat. They got nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. I didn't fit in with my family. My parents ran this very controlling house. I ran away a lot. Skateboarding is more of a family than my family. A bit of the trailer there from the new documentary, Minding the Gap, the film from a first-time director and an Asian-American director, Bing Liu. It follows the lives of three young men who bond over their love of skateboarding and struggle as they start to face adult responsibilities. It's a co-production with the great Chicago-based doc production company, Cartemquin Films. It debuted at Sundance, and I believe it's currently playing in limited release. It's definitely available to stream on Hulu if you would like to do some homework and be prepared for next week's conversation We also should mention it's a film that's shot entirely in Rockford, just down the road here about an hour and a half from Chicago. Yeah, so next week on the show, we are going to talk about Minding the Gap. That'll be part of a Golden Brick Roundup. These will be our thoughts on a few new films that have been shortlisted for our Underseen Film of the Year Award. So along with Minding the Gap, we're certainly going to cover Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. We plan to review that on next week's show, consideration for the Golden Brick as well. This, too, got a lot of attention at Sundance. It's currently playing in limited release, opening in Chicago on the 31st. Madeline's Madeline is about a teen girl struggling with mental illness whose grip on reality is further tested by the director of an experimental theater troupe. Now, this first came on my radar thanks to critic and friend of the show, David Ehrlich. He began championing it right out of Sundance, has not stopped, has been beating the drum for this thing all year long and so I'm really eager to check it out his mm-hmm. his money quote one of the boldest and most invigorating american films of the 21st century yeah that's a straight shot of van perbole I've seen pictures of David. He reminds me of Sam Van Hallgren, our esteemed producer and former co-host a little bit. And he's got some Van Perbley in him. I love it. He can be a little guilty of that. (laughs) Minding the Gap, by the way, spoiler alert, I've seen it. I don't think you have yet. I have. Oh, you just caught up with it. Yeah. I'll go ahead and say, absolutely, Golden Brick worthy. Yeah, for sure. And I will also say, listeners who are looking to catch it, be ready, because that may sound like a lighter film than you might be expecting. You're right. Skateboarding. This gets heavy. (laughs) Really heavy. In a a really good way. Yes, but to use a word that our producer Sam used with me when talking about it over Slack today, it's still at times exhilarating. And part of the reason it is is because of the skateboarding footage yeah. and the way Bing Lu shoots The craft, it. So, for sure. yeah, look forward to talking about that in more detail. One or two other titles we might get to next week. 
The Happy Time Murders, the non-Golden Brick eligible non-Muppet Muppet movie starring Melissa McCarthy. Josh, have you caught up with it yet? But no, I haven't. They haven't even screened it Yeah, you're right. It, it just opens this weekend. So maybe I'll get a chance to catch it and sneak it into our Golden Brick show. Okay. More about Happy Time Murders in just a bit when we get into our poll questions. First, we do want to mention that we have advanced screening and often run of engagement passes free, movie passes to give away over at filmspotting.net. Just click on events right there at the top of the page, or you can go to filmspotting.net slash events. There is a screening of movie we were just talking about, Minding the Gap, Wednesday, August 29th. If you'd like to see that movie for free, again, filmspotting.net slash events. We also wanted to bring some attention to a couple of upcoming events happening in the Chicago area. The Thomas Ford Memorial Library, which is just outside of Chicago, they chose Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as the book for their Village Reads program this summer. They're capping that off with a free screen of, no, not Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, but <laughs> a much good. better choice, I think, Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. So they asked Adam and I to be part of a panel discussion they're going to have after that screening. Adam, you had a conflict. I'm still going to make it work. So I'll be there alongside good friend of the show, Steve Procopi. This is free, open to anyone. You didn't have to read Frankenstein to be eligible for this. You do have to register, though. So we'll link to the details and how to do that in the show notes. Here's the time and place, 7.30 p.m. September 5. It's going to be at the York Theater in Elmhurst. I really do think they should set up someone right at the door and they hit you with like seven multiple choice questions about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. If you get them wrong, you can't come in. <laughs> You're tough. You're yeah, tough. We need a sophisticated I don't think audience. I could pass that. There'd be no Probably panel. Probably not. I also wanted to give a quick plug and a welcome to Chicago, to the Middle Coast Film Festival. That's taking place September 21 and 22. For four years, the fest took place in Bloomington, Indiana, but they've moved to Chicago for 2018. They're going to be at the Davis Theater in Lincoln Square. There's a full schedule of indie films. They're going to have lots of filmmaker appearances. So we'll link to the details for that in our show notes as well. I did want to sneak in here a thank you to a listener, and we usually do have a thank you segment on the podcast that we haven't been able to fit in for a while. We do hope to squeeze one in on next week's episode, but this was too good to pass up. Josh, I'm going to go ahead and let you do the honors. A letter, a package, actually. We got in the mail. You can find our P.O. Box address if you're so inclined over at filmspotting.net. And Josh, you can do the honors. A very nice handwritten note. It is indeed. Dear Adam and Josh, over the years, you've helped me digest the multitude of questions I've asked myself after watching movies like Take Shelter or Ex Machina or The Witch. Thank you for being the foundation for which I explore and appreciate cinema through. In gratitude of your careful and intentional passion for film, I've enclosed a solid representation of Bellingham's love of cinema. Two pint glasses from the Pickford Film Cinema, our local nonprofit movie theater. I like where this is going. A current issue of the Pickford Newsletter. A DVD tote bag from Film is Truth. That's our local nonprofit movie rental shop. Sincerely, Ryan Wapnowski. P.S. Here are my top five favorite movies of all time, in no particular order. The Royal Tenenbaums, Whiplash, The Fits, There Will Be Blood, Amelie. And, of course, my honorable mentions, Man on Wire, When Harry Met Sally. That sounds like a film spotting listener. That is quite, Good quite a grouping. Selection I like it. of films. And, yes, we do appreciate everything Ryan sent our way. Now, Josh, I'm going to put you on the spot. I mentioned maybe a Mary Shelley quiz going into the screening. How about this quote on the tote bag? Film is truth 24 times a second. Who said it? Come on, Josh. You got me. It's, it's got to be a documentarian, right? Sometimes he is. Okay. 
though he's usually messing with the form, Jean-Luc Godard oh, said I, I should have just famously. guessed that no and matter I what the quote. I can't wait to be corrected on it. It was someone <laughs> else from the French New Wave. I should have Googled it before I so assuredly pointed out you were wrong. I have the tumblers here, Josh. Okay. And I suppose I will share one of them with you. That'd be I nice I think Ryan you. would like that. Now, here's the one you get. Akira Kurosawa. Okay. His face. To be an artist means never to avert one's eyes. A okay. good quote. And of course, the one that, I mean, I think surely Ryan meant for me, I don't think any of us are normal people, Wes Anderson. Yeah, I'll just keep, I'll just keep the Wes Anderson one. <laughs> I, I see you're doing the selecting. <laughs> I am. Ryan would not make such a mistake. No, of course, I'm going to give the biggest Wes Anderson fan I know the Wes Anderson pint glass. Thank you. And thank you, Ryan. Party of on one of my favorite shots in the film is a homage to Steven Spielberg. I'm going to fast forward that. You know what shot it is? Instead of having uh, a little boy in a bicycle ride off against the moonlight, we had the clan. That's Spike Lee describing a scene from his own Malcolm X. Last week on the show, of course, we reviewed his Black Klansman and we shared our top five Spike Lee shots. That shot Lee is describing of the Ku Klux Klan threatening the home of Malcolm X's parents, then riding off into the moonlight was one of my picks. I think maybe my number two Spike Lee shot, Josh. And I don't think it was John. It might have been another listener who threw that out originally on Twitter and said in their tweet that it was his subversive kind of homage to Spielberg and the movie E.T., that shot, of course, across the moon. And I noted on the show that I would be surprised if that was in any way true, meaning, of course, he's being subversive with it if he is in any way playing homage. But I doubted that Spike Lee was even doing that, that he would have actually called out Spielberg as a reference in some way. But I did provide a disclaimer because knowing our listeners and how smart they are and how tuned in and educated they are, and of course that you can find almost anything on the internet, even though I Googled it and came up with nothing, I threw out the disclaimer. I know someone's going to be able to find this. Someone's going to prove me wrong. And sure enough, there it was. John Ashton found it. That's a clip from an episode of a BBC series called Moving Pictures. John describes it as the greatest ever TV show about movies, but sadly, it's not available anywhere. And yeah, he breaks it all down. And Josh, in that clip, he even goes on to say that it's something like Out of Birth of a Nation. It's basically him having some fun, if you will, at D.W. Griffith's expense. He's being subversive again with that kind of shot. And... I mentioned on the show that it is the kind of glorious version of the Ku Klux Klan you would almost expect out of a D.W. Griffith film. So interesting that it's all right there. Spike laid it all out in that clip. Yeah, and I I love that a listener took that aside and dug this up. It actually relates to one of my top five picks for this show, the things I've learned podcasting about movies. So Mm -hmm. I'll get to that later in the show. We appreciate that. And we also appreciate this bit of feedback from Joran Kane in McKinney, Texas, adding to and providing some insight to another one of my choices. He says, I really enjoyed your Spike Lee top five, and I wanted to add a thought about the opening of Do the Right Thing, although it has nothing to do with the visuals. The solo saxophone that opens the film before Fight the Power is a song called Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is often referred to as the Black National Anthem. It has a century of history behind it, representing black empowerment and is treated here with reverence. Although its presentation in the opening is brief, I think it's important as it acts as the flip side to the aggression and anger expressed in Fight the Power. This dichotomy runs throughout the film, of course, including Radio Raheem's love-hate speech, as well as the closing quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, which present opposing views on the use of violence in the struggle for equality, including that hymn at the very opening of the film sets up the pairing of opposing forces that Lee explores throughout the remainder of this masterpiece. 
absolutely wasn't aware of that song. I think I mentioned something about that transition from horn to hip-hop signaled what type of film, what type of provocative film this was going to be. It doesn't necessarily contradict what I was saying, but it certainly adds to it in a major way to know that that is a song that is often referred to as the Black National Anthem, something I had no idea about, and I'm really appreciative of Joran for offering that insight. Yeah, good stuff, Joran. So that show, we did do our Spike Lee shots for our top five. We also played Massacre Theater, where we perform a scene from a famous film, and you get a chance to win a film-spotting t-shirt. There's still time to play, but we have gotten some early feedback on our performance. This comes from Jared in Springfield, Missouri. Sam and Adam previously massacred part of this same scene on Cinecast number 43. That's going back to October 2005. Adam swapped roles from we won't say to we won't say this time around. Redacted's my best part. But was still (laughs) as bad as ever. Man, you couldn't have been as bad as I was, though. Well, as usual... You had to do the heavier lifting. You failed, but you did have to do the heavier lifting. miserably. Jared continues, while your skills in critical analysis have developed over the running of this show, your acting sadly has not. <laughs> Some things do not improve with age. If you haven't gotten around to listening to that massacre yet, and really, I don't know why we're going to make your ears bleed with our terrible performances, here's a taste of what you missed. It's nice here. May I read my paper? I'm sorry, sir. I Thank you. You know what? I'll get some to eat. No, hell no, you won't. You F that up. I'm trying to read my paper. Please shut up. Yikes. Yeah. If you recognize what movie we massacred, email its title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, August 27th. You two are the most decorated offices in this department. What do you see? Looks like a robbery gone wrong to me. This wasn't a robbery. This was a hit. Welcome. Someone out there <gasps> is killing puppets. Hey, handsome. You looking for some rotten cotton? I'm a woman. That's okay. Yeah, that's even better. Got a good time for you. Melissa McCarthy there and some rotten cotton from the trailer for The Happy Time Murders. It's it's a puppetry term, Adam. Yes. You, you would not be familiar. You know it, of course. <laughs> a couple weeks back, the film spotting poll posed this question. Who is looking forward to Happy Time Murders and why? We gave you these five not wholly satisfactory or complete options. I'm a Muppets fan and can't wait. The Muppets are fine, but no thanks. I'm Muppet agnostic and curious. I'm Muppet agnostic and not interested or other. Other did take last place with 7% of the vote. Next was I'm Muppet agnostic and not interested, 16%. The Muppets are fine, but no thanks. That received 18% of the vote. I'm a Muppets fan and can't wait, received 25% of the vote. And winning the poll, I'm Muppet agnostic and curious, 34%. So just over a third of our audience who participated in the poll going with my pick, I'm Muppet agnostic, but curious about the film. Josh, you were in second place there. Muppets fan, can't wait. Mm -hmm. Okay. The math then. 59% curious to very interested, 34% probably going to skip, 7% looking for a more precise category for their feelings about the Happy Time Murders. I'm sorry we failed you. Indeed, Robin Berman A. wrote, where's the I'm a Muppets fan and curious option? Yeah, we didn't pull that out. I guess it's other, Rob. Brad in West Milwaukee. It basically sounds like who framed Roger Rabbit, but with Muppets instead of cartoons and Melissa McCarthy in the Bob Hoskins role. I feel like this will either be genius or a total train wreck and which way it goes will depend entirely on the script and the performances. I want it to be good, 
but the trailers are not filling me with hope. Steven writes, as someone who grew up with the Muppets and was absolutely gutted when Jim Henson passed away, I see the Happy Time Murders as going too far. The Muppets had edge, but the Red Band trailer left me cold. It came across as crude for crude's sake. There doesn't seem to be any heart in it. Oh, it doesn't sound great. Tom Morris, Disney owns the Muppets, and thanks to a lawsuit between Sesame Street and Avenue Q, Muppets are legally defined. This is not a Muppet movie. However, most of the active Muppet performers are working on it. They have freedom to go crazy as Jim Henson intended. This is a must-see for me, but not my kids. Finally, Bruce Bachelor Glader says, I can't honestly gather up any interest for the Happy Time Murders after viewing the Red Band trailer. Not only does it go out of its way to be offensive and crude, but it's just not funny or clever. The film will have to rise above its marketing to get my attention. Thankfully, Josh and Adam, well, at least Josh, will do the advance work for me. So add all of that up to the last-minute screening, and maybe our decision to do a Golden Brick Roundup show is the right one after yeah, all. maybe it was. Our new poll then, Josh. Last week, we talked very briefly, or at least we teased the opening of the new film, currently in limited release, Juliet Naked. It's based on a novel by Nick Hornby, stars Rose Byrne, Chris O'Dowd, and, yes... Ethan Hawke. We joked that with that combination of actors plus Hornby, it really didn't make any sense that we weren't reviewing it. And we're going to try to make up for that lapse now and then some in a couple of weeks by devoting most of the show to Mr. Ethan Hawke. But first, I have to say that I did catch up with Juliet Naked over the weekend. And it's another romantic comedy. It's our romantic comedy week here, I suppose, with Crazy Rich Asians. And there's some formula to it. There's certainly some cliches, certainly at its core, but I liked it. And it might be because I like Ethan Hawke so much. Here he plays Tucker Crow, a musician who made a seminal kind of cult classic album back in the 90s and then disappeared for a couple of decades. He's got a devoted, obsessed fan in Chris O'Dowd, who is the boyfriend of Rose Byrne's character. She is, of course, wonderful in the film, as she always is, a great comedic talent, but with some serious chops. And she becomes disillusioned with her life with Chris O'Dowd's character and actually does end up, through means I won't really spoil here, though it comes early in the film, ends up corresponding with and developing a relationship with her boyfriend's favorite musician of all time, who no one can even find on the planet. Maybe it's because I'm a sucker for Hornby's material as well, but I can give a recommendation to Juliet Naked. And going back to O'Dowd just for one second, you know I'm all in on Chris Messina, who just missed our top five Chris Power ranking. Yes. Chris O'Dowd made the list at number five for me, number four for number you. Four. I do feel much better about it now. No slight on Chris Messina, who, you know, I had such a great bonding experience with, yeah. with Patty Clarkson. Yeah, you were almost as tight with him as you are with Patty. Yeah, almost at our Sharp Objects premiere and Q&A a few weeks back. But Chris O'Dowd is so good, mm. so funny, hmm. but so human as this kind of pathetic fanboy that I think it might just override other reservations I perceive you will have with the film. He oh, might be enough to elevate it for you. I personally might yeah, have with a film. I'm already predicting okay. your review. Well, since he's my number four Chris, I think he'll carry the day for me. Yeah, he just might. We probably won't get to much talk about Juliet Naked and that Ethan Hawke performance next week on the show. We are going to hear from Ethan Hawke himself, though, my conversation with him about his new directing effort, Blaze. He does appear in the movie, though, if I'm remembering it correctly, only off camera. I think we only hear his voice. He's conducting an interview as a radio host, but he did direct the film. It's based on the life of the Texas singer-songwriter, one of the first outlaw country artists, Blaze Foley. We will also share our top five. Well, we haven't fully defined this yet, but we're going to share 
And Ethan Hawke, top five, maybe performances, probably performances. Non-Richard Linklater, though. Yeah, that's the kicker. exclude those. That's going to be really tough. So we're going to bring in some help for this, and that would be the next picture shows Keith Phipps. He's going to join us for the top five. Keith just published an article at TheRinger.com all about Hawk. It's called Generation Hawk. Here's the header. Ethan Hawk may never have asked to be a Gen X icon, but that designation and a career's worth of brilliant work has only made him better with age. Three new projects in 2018 confirm his greatness. So yeah, we've been talking about Hawk in these terms probably for a couple years now on the show, but it does seem to be coming to a head with these projects that are all coming out this year. What a good time to formalize all that talk yeah. with our own Hawk Top 5. Yeah, we're going to make the hawk official here on Film Spotting if it wasn't already. That brings us to this week's poll question. What is your favorite, not only non-Richard Linklater, but non-2018 Ethan Hawke performance? So you can't include, for example, Ernst Toller and Paul Schrader's first reform. Here are the options we are giving you. Todd Anderson from Dead Poet Society there at the beginning of his career. Troy Dyer from Reality Bites. Totally forgot that was his name. How about Hamlet himself in Michael Almereda's Hamlet? Jake in Training Day or Hank in Sidney Lumet's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Of course, we will offer the option of other. Yeah, you can't go with any of the before trilogy performances. No Waking Life, no Boyhood, and as I said, no First Reform. So throwing out some big ones, but still plenty of great performances to choose from. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. All right, let's get back to Dave Chen, the podcasting veteran whose slash film cast is almost as old as this creaky show, rejoins us in a moment for the film spotting top five, things we've learned podcasting about movies. Stay with us. No need for introduction, you hear and you know why. No diving to an error with the beast of low fi Put my face in the book as my people are profiled. Erased from the books and my people are told lies. Guys, the limit, go fly. Cali Green, we go high. I mean, back in 05, when you do, I grow wise. Surprise, we broke thighs, double dose of broke lies. We drove in those sides. We got a lot of work to do. Okay, people, pay attention because I do not want to have to fail you. I thought you didn't believe in grades. Of course I believe in grades. I was testing you, and you passed. Good work, Summer. Four and a half gold stars for you. Yes, school is in session, Josh, and like Jack Black's Dewey Finn in School of Rock, we're completely unqualified to teach anything as the students are smarter than the teachers. We will get to that here in more detail. Luckily, we do have... Dave Chen back to help us out from the Slash Filmcast. We are going to share the top five things we've learned podcasting about movies or the lessons we've learned podcasting about movies. We'll settle on actual phrasing of this top five when we're done with it. How's that? Lessons is such a school book term. I agree. Term, so just so. things. Things. These are just things we're throwing out that we've learned podcasting about the movies. And it is a variation on a top five we have done previously here on the show. You might remember episode 400. I want to say that was our first ever live show. We celebrated the 400th episode with a live show, and we did the things we learned from the movies. And now we're taking this to the podcasting game and reflecting on our own experiences. In some ways, this might be kind of the 700th episode celebration that we're not going to do in five or six weeks. Maybe we won't blow that out. We'll use this as our chance to reflect. And Dave, I want to bring you in and get just a little bit of insight from you before we share our picks. The Slash Filmcast, 
over 10 years old. How did it begin? Yeah, it began uh, over 10 years ago when I was a podcast fan at that point. I was obviously listening to shows like Film Spotting and Seen Unseen and also uh, other video game podcasts. I was really into video game podcasts at the time. And really, ultimately, the driving force was whenever I went to see a movie with friends. I don't know if you guys have had this experience before. But I would go see a movie with friends and then say, hey, what'd you think of the movie? This extremely momentous, incredible piece of art that someone has poured years of their life into that hundreds of people have worked on and spent tens of millions of dollars on. What did you think of the movie? And my friends would often say, oh, it's pretty good. And that is where the conversation would end. Like that, nothing else beyond that. And uh, that was pretty frustrating. Yeah. You know, I wanted more out of my film conversation. And so found some people that I could have uh, really lengthy debates about movies with, including my college roommate, Devendra, and a random guy on the internet whose work I really appreciated, Adam Quigley. And we started the show a little over 10 years ago. And uh, that is how the Slash Filmcast was born. So we're going to get into the things we think we've learned from podcasting over the years. They might be things specifically about podcasting or communicating through this medium. They might be things we've learned about criticism. I suppose they could be about ourselves even as we go through them. I don't probably envision that many of our choices will be what would qualify as tips about podcasting. I didn't focus on that, though I do think perhaps there will be some helpful insights to people who do podcast currently or are thinking about it, would you say that's accurate with your list as well, Dave? I think so. I think there's some some decent insights here. Some some uh, advice on how to psychologically handle the rigors of podcasting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's how I thought of it. Is, is how do I wrap <laughs> my mind around this thing that we try to do every week and pull it off? And, and I'll just say from the start that I'm going to chip in as I can, but it, I mostly want to listen to you too because you're you're somewhat you know godfathers of movie podcasting, having been doing it this long, been at the forefront. I mean, I've been I've been working as a critic since '94, but I really didn't get into radio or podcasting until I joined Film Spotting. Mm-hmm. So it's been six years now on the show. I did you know stuff like Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on WGN. Every once in a while, I'd jump on for an Oscar show or something like that. Gave me a taste, but it was nothing like being part of a weekly show built on in-depth criticism. So I think a lot of what I've learned is going to be about making that adaptation, making Mm. that shift a little bit. Well, I can't wait to find out how to handle the psychological rigors of doing this show every week by the end of this (laughs) top five. This is going to be a really valuable, insightful listen for me personally. Now, I will point out that as I was going through these, I had a movie quote in mind. This will all make sense as we get to my number one pick. And then It did occur to me that I could have some fun in having movie quotes be the basis for all of my choices. I shared that with you, Dave. You like the idea. Josh found out about it as well. Didn't want to be left out of our reindeer game. So we all have movie quotes. Even though we're not focusing on lessons from the movies, these are quotes from the movies that help set up our lessons, the things we have learned. And Dave, we are going to start with you as our guest, your number five. First of all, I'll just say I'm really excited because I've seen your quotes and I'm like very eager to find out the origin stories behind like some of these. So <laughs> I just picked very psyched for Adam. That's <laughs> how we made his list. Quotes first, all right, yeah. idea later. So as Adam indicated, these are kind of jumping off points. For me, it's a jumping off point. It's not like the quote 
illustrates the totality of what I'm trying to say. But it's a jumping off point, and uh, obviously all these are movies, and, and in one case a TV show that I really love. So I will start with my number five quote, and then the lesson that is associated with it. Quote, well, whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it? In your head. You never meet anybody that thinks they're a bad person. End quote. And uh, for those of you who are Matt Damon fans, you'll recognize that as the words of Tom Ripley in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Why did I choose that quote? I think it's because one of the things that is really key to podcasting is having a good relationship with your audience and trying to understand what they want you know, doing something that is a show that you're proud of, but also something that people are ideally going to like. And when you're an audience member, everyone wants to be a good listener. Everyone wants to be a good audience member. When you're a podcaster, everyone wants to be a good, you know, broadcaster or a good personality. But I would say that despite that desire, in general, people's capacity for complaining is higher than their capacity for praise. At least I found in, in my experience. Because if you think about like the things that you enjoy, you know, you probably listen to podcasts on your own, radio shows on your own. Uh, you, there's probably musicians you like, directors you appreciate. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I don't. I personally don't spend that much time writing thank you notes to those people. I don't spend that much time tweeting those people as much as I should, saying how awesome I think their work is, writing letters to them, praising them. Because I think you just kind of take, if you're a consumer, you just kind of take it for granted. Like, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying this work and I don't owe anything to anyone to like thank them. I'm, I'm, I'm buying it. I'm paying for it. But if you're a podcaster, how that comes across is that people who don't like you, they do write to you. You know, they do say things to you. They do voice their dissatisfaction. And uh, you kind of get this skewed perspective of your audience over time, right? You kind of get random complaints here and there. But the people, the silent majority, you know, the 80 to 90% of people who never write in, they're still enjoying what you're doing. And so you, you kind of get this skewed perspective of like, are people really enjoying what you do? Mm. But in reality, the vast majority of people are. They just uh, maybe haven't gotten around to saying thank you. This is basically my way, guys, of telling your audience to write film spotting and uh, <laughs> thank you guys for all your hard work. Oh, oh, that's what that, that all was. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, I, I think about that, Dave, in the inverse, really, when, when you do get a lot of that stuff. And, and honestly, you know, I would say our emails aren't mostly that no. they're, the, the emails are really thoughtful. I mean, they're not necessarily just thank you notes, but they're thoughtful criticism too. But you'll get a lot of that on social media, I would say. And, and I think of that always as the vocal minority. It's like the inverse of what you were saying, Dave, and just try to remind myself exactly of what you're saying is, is, you know, there is that majority who, if they're still listening, they must still be pleased with what you're doing. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's a good reminder to keep in the back of your head. Yeah, I don't think I'm pandering to say that we're really grateful for how many, not just thoughtful, but really gracious and, I suppose, praising emails we have gotten over 13 years of doing this show. But it's absolutely human nature to respond or share your thoughts when you feel like criticizing something, when something has gone wrong. All the things that you love about the show that usually are what brings you to a podcast. I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. I can't remember the last time I wrote to any podcast. I probably never have. But if I ever feel inclined to, it's because of one misstep or two missteps that I hear. <laughs> it's not the other 99% of the time that they're doing it the way I want them to do it. So that right. is just human nature, but I think that's a great 
point by you, Dave. And that brings us to Josh's number five. So I'm going to start with what I've learned, and then I'll give you the quote that uh, that came to mind after I thought about this. At number five, the thing I've learned is that you really need a good producer. And the quote, so everyone true. will know where this comes from, the numbers all go to 11. <laughs> you need someone <laughs> with a little bit more know-how than that from This Is Spinal Tap, of course. I'm not just kissing up to Joe Deso and Sam Van Hogren here, our producers, uh, but I do want to take this chance to let listeners know about those crucial things they do. I mean, to start with, yeah, simply covering up our mistakes, stitching the whole thing together so it's seamless from segment to that's, segment. No, that's how it is from start yeah. to finish. We have like 18-hour recording sessions, people. <laughs> Let me just tell you. No, it's not that long. But before he even gets the sound, you know, Sam is is stoking ideas for the content. Uh, it relates to a little bit to what you mentioned, Dave. He, he's got a good sense for a good instinct for what listeners might be interested in. Then uh, producing is weaving in the audio clips. So whether it's music, sound effects or the dialogue from movies. I mean, this is always beautifully done on the show. And it really supports our points. I mean, my favorite top fives are the ones where... He can use a lot of scenes. It just makes us sound so much more perceptive than we are. When you hear that, you're like, oh, that was a good point, but it's all about the clip. (laughs) And there's probably a whole host of other technical things that I'm not even aware of that Sam and Joe do to make this show sound as good as it does. So honestly, when I used to just listen to the radio or podcasts, I very rarely thought about the producer's role. So it's something that really my eyes have been open to that what you hear on the microphone it's only a small part of what makes for a good show. Yeah. There's no show without those guys. Guys, I, I feel like I am Rachel Chu entering the world of Crazy Rich Asians <laughs> in the sense that, <laughs> you know, I've done all my producing myself. So all that stuff that you just said, I've had to do that myself over the years. But agreed that yes. the producer <laughs> plays an extremely important role. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was the first two years of this show where Sam was the co-host, but still had those natural instincts and had some training as a radio producer. So he brought that to the show. And then there were those four years kind of in the wilderness. And it was not strictly because Maddie was the co-host here, but because it was just me and Maddie and Sam wasn't involved with the show for those four years that I don't really know how we survived it simply because of, as you know, everything you just articulated, Josh, everything he brings to it every day. And on the back end for me, with some help from Joe, certainly a lot of help from Joe, it was still a really daunting task and the show no doubt is much better off with Sam as involved as he is. Okay. My number five quote is take me to pleasure town. Oh, we're going there. Veronica Corningstone and Ron Burgundy from Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy. This is a movie that will never be in the film spawning pantheon. It's a fine movie, but I think it will fit perfectly with the lesson learned here by my number five. And that is there's no such thing as guilty pleasures for me. This is not a huge revelation. I have even said it a few times here over the years on the show, but fairly recently, I didn't start the show with this mindset. I think I was, especially then, and still am to a point, we all to a point probably are, susceptible to wanting to try to appear as smart and sophisticated and serious about film as we possibly can. And that can lead sometimes to overlooking or writing off certain movies or certain types of movies or downplaying how much you enjoyed a certain movie. And at some point over the course of doing this show, I realized that I liked what I liked and I wasn't going to apologize for it. And I think part of that is that as you get older, I think many of us just become less interested in defining what we love or hate based on what some other group of people loves or hates, presumably a far less 
smart and sophisticated and serious group of people. But the biggest driving force is, as we're tossing praise around, is my co-host. Starts with Sam, Maddie, you, Josh, being unabashed in defending what you love and hate, despite sometimes the conventional wisdom and despite how utterly ridiculous your view may be to me sometimes. That has been empowering to me. So, yeah, it's not a guilty pleasure. If it's pleasurable, then it's just a pleasure. Good. And stand behind it. I'm glad I could play a small part in, in opening you up to that, Adam. You have. I think that's a great policy. No guilty pleasures. Everything is a pleasure. I, I love it. All right. Dave, you're number four. All right. This, this quote illustrates a couple points. Uh, I'm going to read it for you right now. Quote, I mean, I got everything I need right here with me. I got air in my lungs, a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world, having champagne with you fine people, end quote. <laughs> Jack That Dawson. comes from uh, David Chen on the... Th- no, I'm just joking. Um, that's from uh, Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in James Cameron's film Titanic. And there's a couple of things that I think this quote illustrates. Number one is that podcasting is awesome because it, it's it's been so wonderful. It allows you to meet cool people and have experiences that you would have never otherwise dreamed to be possible. I mean, you guys have had amazing guests on this show. I've had amazing guests on the Slash Filmcast. And it just I just never would have dreamed it was possible before, when I was first getting started that we'd be able to interview filmmakers that I'd looked up to for years, you know, and, and to be able to get insights from them and to be able to break news on the show. So that's one thing that I think is great about podcasting is that you never know who you're going to meet. You know, you never know what's going to happen. It's so unpredictable. It's such a an emerging kind of technology and me- form of media. So that's that's one thing that I, I got from that quote. And another thing, I, I'm kind of cheating here, but another lesson is that you know, Titanic in many ways represented America, right? There was like all the upper class people, and then the people in steerage, and I think. One of the things that I wish it was easier to communicate about podcasting is that there's this huge middle class of podcasters, right? There's people who make a living off of podcasting and who have millions of subscribers. And then on the other end, there's people who have a podcast that maybe, you know, five to 10 people who are friends and family members members listen to. And I do not wish to denigrate those people because I started out as one of those people. But once you've achieved a certain level, you know, you want to be able to convey that you're not either one of those groups. You're kind of somewhere in this vast middle. Mm. And I would argue like that's where our podcast lies. Like we're, we've reached like a really solid group of people but we're not going to get rich off it, but it's not something that's so small that we could quit it and it would be insignificant, you know? So those are a couple lessons that I took from that quote is like this idea that, wow, new experiences, exciting, but also like, yeah, there's this vast middle class of podcasters that um, I consider myself a part of. I can see the t-shirts now film spotting somewhere in the vast middle. (laughs) (laughs) We got to add that to the website though. It's so very true. Great stuff. Josh. All right. My number four, The thing I've learned is that someone is always listening, sometimes even filmmakers. And a very obvious quote to accompany this from the conversation, we'll be listening to you. So this this should be like a little bit like what you were talking about, Dave, where you come out of the movie and you're with friends and you just talk about that movie. It should be just as if Adam and I are hanging out, gabbing. But somewhere in the back of your mind, you have to remember that there are many 
ears listening mm-hmm. to this. And this is what I was referring to, Adam, uh, in our earlier segment about the listener pointing out the Spike Lee homage in Malcolm X to Spielberg, right. how you wondered about that. And it was just kind of an offside you had mentioned in our previous show. And sure enough, there a listener is. finds it, digs up an actual clip of him talking about that. So I think, you know, the balance I've learned to try and strike is you you firmly offer an opinion, but you try to make it one that's at least considered the position of others who might be listening. So you're speaking from that, try to speak from that point of consideration at least. It's not so much about playing it safe, but it's mm-hmm. it's more about being aware of the larger conversation. Um, and this might be listeners, this might be as we often bring in, like you did with Crazy Rich Asians, a Twitter thread that applies, something like that to bring that into the review. Now, as for the filmmakers listening, I really try to not even think about that because as I've told you, Adam, that if I focus on it, it'll become too paralyzing. I mean, I do – I really believe criticism is its own type of art form, but hey, it's parasitic. It's a, It's secondary to the art it's considering. And so I'd hate to think that anyone would take what I have to say about something Dave created all that seriously. So hmm. I just try to forget that that happens on occasion. <laughs> well – it would have been perfect if my number three was my number four and it could have followed all of that. But we'll just have to wait as we do here. My number four, which is with so much at stake, all you can think of is your own feelings coming from Casablanca. One of the three movie quotes you're going to hear from a Pantheon level film spotting movie. There are a couple different ways that we could go with this one, how stakes apply to drama and also how they apply to actually doing this show. I've touched on this a little bit before, the recurring bit about a movie's stakes being so important. That's actually another approach that rose out of doing the show with both Sam and Maddie, both actors, both educated at the same college. I guess they took the same classes, and it really resonated with them. I suppose because they were actors and they approached and studied drama differently than me, even though... I'm guessing we all took pretty much the same Humanities 101 class and read Aristotle. That was something they could fall back on. And I don't mean as a crutch, but as a foundation for their criticism and something they could lean on whenever a movie was working for them or wasn't working for them. And over the years, it's really stuck with me. I've adopted it, too. And I do think it is universal in many ways. We could get into the intro to film analysis stuff about cause and effect chain of events and classical Hollywood cinema versus art house cinema, but high stakes isn't about scale. It's not about saving the world or whatever it might be. You can make a 90-minute movie about an eight-year-old girl going a block away from her house to the grocery store to pick something up for her family. And if you set up why that item is important to her family and you put some kind of obstacle in her way, I'm in, especially if I also have some investment in the characters and buy into the rules of the world being depicted, however real or fantastic they might be. So there's that. And then there's how the idea of stakes ties into podcasting and doing a show like Film Spotting. One thing, as I reflect back on it, that Sam and I, when we started the show in 2005, must have just implicitly believed, because we never talked about it, is that it was one thing to have passion for what you were discussing. We knew we weren't going to lack that. But for it to really connect with someone, you had to have passion with a purpose, which is another way of saying, I think the show had to have stakes. And that manifests itself in a variety of ways, but one of them being 
top five lists like this and our approach to them. Yes, they're mostly arbitrary. Sometimes we openly acknowledge that. Maybe sometimes when we've screwed up and we want a way out and we want to just suggest they're these superficial things that you shouldn't take so seriously. But we do take them so seriously. And the reason we spend so much time thinking about criteria and what's eligible and what isn't and how the movies are ranked is because that's how we're built, partly, at least me and Sam for sure. But it's also because if we care if we feel like a misguided choice has consequences, well, then our listeners will care as well. They'll be invested. So every week here on Film Spotting, we're going to that store, and you as listeners hopefully know what item we need to bring home. And you hopefully have some sense of what the obstacle is, too, which is all the films we haven't seen, all the films we're ashamed we haven't seen, all the books we haven't read, all the things about life and art in general we simply don't understand, and of course, time. So there you go. I've managed to tie stakes back into the very medium of podcasting itself, which was probably inevitable with this list. That is a beautiful formulation, Adam. But I'm going to tell you, you really make me feel lame for not having top five lists on my podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> well, every yeah. other podcast has taken it. Yeah. So, you know, why not you, Dave? <laughs> All right. That brings us to your number three, Dave. This is a simple one. I wish I knew how to quit you. That's by Jack Twist from Brokeback Mountain, <laughs> the Ang Lee movie. And I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand or may not understand is that the majority of podcasts, the vast majority of podcasts are labors of love. And I think it's, they're very, very delicate things, you know, because if you think of what a podcast is fundamentally, it's two, three or four people who can stand each other. And well, who have interesting uh. things to say about it. <laughs> and who have interesting things to say to each other, you know? Yeah. And if you think about that balance of elements and how long something like that can be maintained, it's a miracle that any podcast survives after a few weeks, you know, that mm -hmm. how, how long can several people who are very, typically, by the way, who have strong personalities, right? Because if they don't, then it's not going to be a super interesting podcast. How can these people be in a, you know, in, in some cases, a small enclosed environment and have th interesting things to say to each other and continue to stand each other and, and hopefully even like each other and do that over the course of many years. It's just very difficult to do. It's very difficult to maintain. And any change can often disrupt the podcast and make it no longer possible. You know, having a kid, moving across the country, like any small change in life can really dramatically impact the ability of a podcast to survive. So my hat's off to you, gents, for leading the way and uh, surviving for so long. I think it's really <laughs> admirable. But yeah, most podcasts Though I are, am are on laborers. I co-host, Dave. So. <laughs> <laughs> most podcasts are laborers, laborers of love, and it's because you wish you knew how to quit them, but you can't. Because no. you don't know how to quit them. No, it's so um, well said. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? What you're getting at too is that there is there is a wall that I think you see a fair number of new podcasts hit and and not really break through. And it it may not be a reason of effort or quality or anything like that. There's just something that's that's what you're talking about. It, it's this intangible element that if you can push through that and it still keeps going and it does become this labor of love, then then you're probably going to be able to sustain it. So Yeah. And I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but we have been doing this show, what, for six years together? Yeah. And the first three years, probably, 
I enjoyed it. Of course, it was a good experience. It was, it and was, then after that, it went all no, down. No, 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 listen to where I'm going. <laughs> You've been struggling ever since. Okay. I enjoyed it, and I thought the shows were good to very good. They were fine. But at some point, and I don't remember an exact moment. I couldn't pinpoint an exact show. But it went from being enjoyable to really fun. Hmm. And I don't know when that exactly happens. Hopefully you've hit that mark too at some point, yeah, Josh. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it was when I convinced you that The Wolf of Wall Street isn't very good. <laughs> that was it. That was <laughs> that show, wasn't it? No, it was <laughs> Not definitely way after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's get to your number three, Josh. My number three is maybe one reason I have been able to keep it going on my end at least. It's talk about the things you're passionate about. And appropriately, I'm going with a Rushmore quote here. She's my Rushmore, Max. So this came to mind on Twitter when listener Eric Nelson, he's at Beagling Life. He threw something out there when we mentioned that we were going to do this show with you, Dave. He said, I imagine shows where you do franchise talk provide ratings bumps. How do you select content to give airtime to? Focus on your favorite movies or potential golden bricks? That would feed your podcaster's soul, but likely deprive you of an audience. So this is something we've probably spent more time talking about in the last year or two, right, Mm -hmm. Adam? Is that real? Reality. Like we do see when when we'll, in most cases, do say the latest Marvel movie, some of which we are genuinely interested in, but maybe not as many as they release every year. We know that there's going to be interest in those. So we try to figure out how to balance that. You know, the perfect scenario, and this goes back to Dave, you saying how it's a labor of love. It's something we are doing on the side. The perfect scenario we're just not capable of. That's probably the big movie everyone's interested in in one episode. Then it's a personal choice, whether that is a potential golden brick film or something smaller. And then a top five. You know, that would be possibly a blueprint for the perfect show, but our schedules just aren't going to allow us to pull that off every week. So we do try to balance the golden bricks. You know, that's a perfect way, a great way for us to do that is kind of get that fix of these smaller films that we are really interested in and often at the end of the year become the ones we're the most passionate about. Right. I think our marathons that we do of genres or filmmakers or regions of cinema are also another way to get that fix. So we certainly never want to lose that passion and, and do try to find ways to to keep fostering that. And sometimes it is from the big film, you know, the big blockbuster release where I think we're both enough wide ranging movie fans that we can get a jolt from mm-hmm. those on occasion, too. Yeah, I feel like 90 percent of the time this is true for the entire history of doing this show. We know what movie we want to talk about. And it usually is one of the bigger releases, which doesn't necessarily mean it's the one that's playing on the most screens, but it's prominent and people are aware of it. It's not a marathon film or only a kind of golden brick film that's flying completely under the radar, but it's a dance. It is a dance that we all have to do, and I'm guessing you approach it in a similar way, Dave. Well, I'll say this. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> like how you guys are talking about choosing the next Marvel film or not. I mean, for me, the challenge is not whether we review the next Marvel film, because that is a given. The challenge is whether we're going to review the next Transformers film, you know, mm-hmm. which I will say... Uh, sometimes we do choose a Transformers film because we think people will listen to it. And Josh, to your point, those are not movies that I'm passionate about. However, however, I am passionate about the conversations we have because we usually have a really fun time making fun of those films. But, um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, to your, to your point, you know, you should choose what you're passionate about because uh, if you're not passionate about it, it will show. And so I think that's yeah. a great yeah, for sure. choice for something you've learned. Well, speaking of making fun of movies or not making fun of movies, my pick that perfectly would have followed your number mm-hmm. four, Josh. So not 
something that contradicts anything you said, kind of fits right in line with it, I think, maybe a slightly different take on it. My number three, the quote is, I know you think those guys are your friends. You want to be a true friend to them? Be honest. And here's my change. I'm messing with Cameron Crowe's dialogue. Be honest and merciful, not unmerciful, from Almost Famous, the great line from Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs in that film. I think this gets at circumstances, surely, that only (laughs) developed from doing this show and having a measure of relative success beyond what you ever imagined. Dave, you touched on it. When Sam and I started the show, we didn't even do it for the reasons you did, which was to have that conversation. Of course, that was part of it, but it was also on a more basic level, literally just to force us to watch one movie a week. We had gotten so away from seeing movies consistently, gotten so caught up in our lives and kids and jobs and other things that we weren't even watching movies anymore, much less talking about them. So the show was legitimately an excuse to force us to watch one movie a week. And we never anticipated really what the audience would be. We never anticipated at any point that we would be talking to people like Ethan Hawke, like Steven Soderbergh, some of these people that I revere. And of course, then from that, that I would actually get to meet and interact with some of these people that I am a fan of. And when you develop a rapport with an artist, I won't say a friendship because that's not at all what it is, but you take someone who you have something in common with, someone you already have some measure of respect for, maybe as I said, you are a fan of their work, and then you do get to actually interact with them. Or maybe you find out that they're a fan of your work on the show. How do you walk that line as a critic? Can you walk that line? It hasn't caused me as much angst over the years as some may imagine, I think partly because I always set out in reviewing to not try to be dismissive or overly snarky. I think that maybe stems from my background as someone who made films, even if it was just student films, and I was someone who wanted to do more than make student films and didn't go down that path. But I do think that humility as a critic is crucial, and I approach every review now as if the director or the writer or one of the stars or the DP or the gaffer, whoever it might be, one of them or some combination of them could be listening to this show and listening to the review. Someone who invested their considerable time and artistic energy to create something that, okay, maybe I didn't fully appreciate, but is also something that I have never tried to accomplish on that level myself. And even though that probably only happens 1% of the time, maybe 2% of the time. It's something that is always in the back of my mind. And I am not remotely suggesting then that a critic should pull back, should not be honest. No, be honest, but be merciful because it is criticism. It is subjective. It's not journalism. We don't have that same obligation that Lester Banks is speaking of there. And frankly, it's the same mercy I want from our audience who, going back to my number four choice, hopefully they do have some sense of an appreciation for the obstacles we face just producing the show every week. And when we fall short, tell us, be honest, be direct, be merciful. Yeah, and that's really changed for me since joining the show. When I was writing for newspapers, the the gap between the filmmakers and those reviews seemed so wide. And part of this is, you know, being on the show and having 
filmmakers come on the show, but also knowing that some listen, but also it's a social media has closed that gap too, yeah. you know, and I think that probably would be true for anyone doing criticism. And so I do as often as I can at some point when writing something or even talking on the show, think about, okay, how is this going to sound to the people who are involved? Like if I have a, a critique, yeah. am I being fair about it? Yeah. I do try to keep that in mind. Okay. Well, that brings us to our top two lessons, the things we've learned from podcasting about the movies, us as a show over 13 years, Dave and the Slash Filmcast over 10 years, and we are going to hear your number two, Dave Chen. So I'm going to use a quote to introduce this one, but this one does not come from a film. It comes from a Netflix original series. And here's the quote, Kelsey, in this terrifying world, all we have are the connections that we make. End quote. And that is from the Netflix original series, Bojack Horseman. That is Bojack Horseman writing, I believe, in that season of the show. So what am I talking about? What, what lesson do I draw from that? And it's that really what podcasting has allowed me to do and what I assume it's allowed you guys to do is to make extremely meaningful connections that will probably last for a very long time. I mean, both of my co-hosts came to my wedding. I've met so many amazing people through the podcast, including you guys, Mm -hmm. um, and including many people with whom I'd collaborate in other projects, that I've just been extremely grateful for it. That when when you put yourself out there in a big way, uh, in a meaningful way, and what you have to say and and the quality of the product you're producing is is at least moderate to high, it's very possible that um, it will allow you to make connections that uh, will impact your life hugely. So Love it. My number two is a perfect follow-up to that one, Dave. It's uh, what I've come to learn is that criticism is a community. And I'm quoting, welcome to the dollhouse here. Do you think anyone will join our club? Uh, there's something about the intimate nature of podcasting that made me realize this, even, even though it's not unique to podcast criticism. I'll say, you know, print critics certainly have community too. Social media, again, has changed this where it's easier to have community with other critics. But, you know, Nothing has fostered it, at least in my experience, as well as being part of a a podcast and that community of listeners and fellow critics who are around it. Back when I was at the newspaper, I mean, we'd get occasional letters to the editor about movies, but that was it. Here on Film Spotting, though, I mean, we bring in fellow critics uh, like you on this show, Dave. I mean, just the fact that I'm in Seattle, what, last February, and I know, oh, Dave Chen lives there. I why don't I see if he wants to get together? And mm-hmm. we can, you know. That's there's just something really amazing about that. Uh, it's why we incorporate listener feedback as much as we do in the show. Have even had listeners come in behind the mic and contribute. And of course, the meetups that we do and the live shows we've been able to do. All that has, you know, kind of really exploded this sense of community for me. So. We're a group that's probably a little bit odd, a little bit obsessed. I think that's why Don Wiener's uh, Special People Club came to mind for me. But I wouldn't have it any other way. It's been a great, great thing to experience uh, since joining the show. Yeah, I think about a lot of film spotting meetups over the years, but I go back to, I think, the second one that has been brought up on the show before. But I go to New York. I can't remember why I was there and needed a place to stay. So who opens up his apartment at the time? Not married. No kids. Matt Singer. We don't know each other except that he listens to the show, and he did a special little segment on us on IFC News, but I come to town, opens up his place to me, we end up going out, we meet other listeners, I meet Mikado Murphy there at the time, who's now a movies editor at the New York Times, does those great pieces like the one we featured last week on our Spike Lee show, still a friend, someone who I see every time I'm in New York, and those connections really are 
extremely meaningful, and we are all in sync with this number two choice then. My quote is, now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation, which a few of you may have heard once or twice if you listen to the show. I am so excited. <laughs> so excited to learn, because this is at the beginning of every episode of Film Spotting, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm is. so excited to learn, like, what is the origin of this, and why is it in the intro of every episode of Film Spotting? So... I was thinking about this earlier today. It's to force me to talk, Dave. That's what a reminder (laughs) for me. (laughs) Well, I do recall, I was going to say, Dave, that it's not as grand a story as one would imagine. As so many things are, you make choices that are usually utilitarian and you don't think about the importance of them at the time. For example, the theme song that everyone equates with this show, the song This Machine by a band that's defunct called Age of the Rifle. Everyone knows that riff. The only reason that's the film spotting theme music is because when we started the show, I didn't have any licensed free music except Kevin, who was interning for me, was the guitar player in this band, and he'd given me their CD. The other CD I had that I knew I had the license to were songs I wrote with my band out of college, and I listened to all those songs because, of course, I wanted to feature those, and I listened to them I'm like, we're not really a riff band. You know, we're like the five-minute guitar solo band. There's no riffs here. I put on his little four-song EP, and I think the second song that plays, I hear that guitar riff, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. That's it. And that Scent of a Woman clip where you hear Al Pacino, what kind of a show are we putting on here today, was one that I used to use back on my Burn Hollywood Burn show at the University of Iowa in 2000, 2001, kind of a precursor to film spotting. I do think that for some reason that idea of a conversation was in my head, that I knew it was going to be about a conversation between two people. And I just started Googling quotes, movie quotes that prominently featured the word conversation and the graduate came up and I loved the graduate and the line worked and I threw it in and the rest is history. That's why it's there. It's as simple as that. I think it was just Googling back conversation. Yeah. yeah, I really did. <laughs> and this follows exactly what you were saying, Josh, because I think even before the show started, when I was just writing reviews, doing that show, but also writing reviews for two years at the Daily Iowa, and I was a grad student, I was a little older, still just a student newspaper, but that's how I kind of cut my teeth every week being expected to file a review. I think I always idealistically believed that criticism was a conversation. It was an exchange of ideas, that writing your review was just your way of igniting a conversation. You'd put it out there to the world, then readers responded, and new conversations and ideas would spark from that. But that was basically some BS, let's face it, because what were most critics doing to actually engage with their readers? Printing a few letters that were written to them, maybe using an occasional bit of feedback to build a column around. Otherwise, Really just, I think, the mechanism of print criticism itself was such that every critic was, even if they weren't approaching it that way, they were essentially in their ivory tower bestowing their better judgment onto the world. I think that's why at the time I don't feel this as much anymore, and maybe I'm in a bubble and that's inaccurate, but that kind of hostility towards a lot of film critics I don't think is as omnipresent because that wall has been broken down a little bit, but they were basically saying, here it is, this is the way you should think about this movie, and of course I'm simplifying it, but I don't think anyone can argue with the change that has occurred because of the internet and because of podcasting, and I threw out this whole top five topic to our Film Spotting Advisory Board 
here again, connections we've made, how smart our listeners are, how much we depend on them. Uh, Chuck Canzanieri, he's a listener in L.A. He's been part of our group of listeners of eight or ten listeners who have just been devoted to the show, really know the history of it, and are super, more than anything, they're super smart about film. And I just kind of threw it out there. I said, I know this is a personal top five. I know it would be hard for you to predict what I'm going to say, but I'm just curious. You know the show so well. What stands out to you as maybe something that's evolved or what's your perception of how criticism and podcasting has changed. And Chuck wrote this. One thing I think of is how we've changed from a culture centered around the box office to one that expands our knowledge of film by listening to podcasters that recommend world cinema or classics. When the show does a marathon to cover blind spots, we're invited to take these dives as well and experience films and filmmakers that have seemed daunting for us to tackle alone. Werner Herzog is a standout example. In a big picture way, we learn that while film viewing is a solitary experience, talking about that experience afterwards is what makes cinema such an interesting fire to huddle around. I could probably just end this here because that's so well said, but even though we don't devote as much time to listener feedback on the show as we used to, where it used to get its own segment in 20 to 30 minutes, I wouldn't even know where to start if I had to list all the ways this show, and I don't mean episodes every week, I mean everything the show is built on was indebted to ideas and opinions and perspectives from our listeners. The marathons that Chuck mentioned, that came from listeners at that point, maybe about six months into the show, hearing our top five picks, me and Sam, the same picks coming up and the same blind spots being mentioned over and over again, all these great Westerns that we'd never seen. Basically, people started writing in saying, you know, you guys really should watch a few Westerns. <laughs> maybe maybe they'd come up in some of these lists and you'd have a better perspective. And that's what started the marathon. And we've done, what, 35 of them or something now over 13 years. And as I mentioned before, I know this is something that I only learned from doing the show because I couldn't have known it would ever happen. We never expected listeners. We never thought of a world where we'd be getting that type of feedback and input from our audience. And I just know that whether it's on the front end or the back end of a topic, that I'm only going to be better informed. I'm going to have insights to share because of the insights and the questions and the prodding of our listeners. It's just been a tremendous resource. And I know that those perspectives are out there and they're going to be shared with us, but I also know they're there if I need them. I looked this up today and this actually astonished me. We get those perspectives from all over the world and from so many different types of people because how many different countries do you think we have had at least one download from in this calendar year? Oh, man. It's a little in, game. We'll see who's closer. Year? In this calendar year, at least one download from how many countries? Josh, your guess first. 40. Okay. Dave Chen? Uh, 80. Would you believe 207? Whoa. I could give you the Very list. Nice. Yeah, Yikes. it's incredible. And That's pretty crazy. It really is incredible that we do have those listeners and that resource to draw on. So thank you to everyone who offers those insights and who has stuck with us over those years. That brings us to, finally, our number one, Dave Chen. All right. You guys got to bear with me on this one, as you have been for my entire list. This one comes from the movie Adaptation. And I, I have to set this one up a little bit. So if you've seen Adaptation, right, the Spike Jones movie, it's about the writing of a movie based on The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. And during the course of the film, Susan Orlean meets this guy, The Orchid Thief, John LaRoche, played by Chris Cooper. And at one point in the movie, Jean LaRoche is talking about 
flowers and the relationship that insects have with flowers. I'm going to read this quote here. Quote, Point is, what's so wonderful is that every one of these flowers has a specific relationship with the insect that pollinates it. There's a certain orchid looks exactly like a certain insect. So the insect is drawn to this flower, its double, its soulmate, and wants nothing more than to make love to it. And after the insect flies off, spots another soulmate flower and makes love to it, thus pollinating it. And neither, okay, and so that's kind of the setup, right? And then here's the, here's the quote that's really what I'm trying to get at. Neither the flower nor the insect will ever understand the significance of their lovemaking. I mean, how could they know that because of their little dance, the world lives, but it does? By simply doing what they're designed to do, something large and magnificent happens, end quote. So I, I want to start by saying that I am under no illusions about the significance of my podcast or, you know, the act of podcasting in general. I don't think it's any grand statement about my life or, or that it is not dwarfed by the actual works that, uh, that we comment upon. But one thing that I've been extremely struck by is how this podcast that I started, the Slash Filmcast, which I, I created, as I indicated, to just mess around on Skype and talk with some dudes about movies how this podcast has become extremely meaningful to people in ways that I could not have predicted. I've received uh, uh, emails, as I'm sure you have received emails, from people in, in the last month even who have written, one person, Andrew, from Ontario, Canada, wrote in to say that he had been diagnosed with cancer, colon cancer, and that the podcast had been an extremely meaningful part of his life during his very difficult treatment period. Another listener, Hyron, wrote in to say that he was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and that the podcast helped him to stay connected to the world of movies during a difficult time. And th these things are extremely humbling and gratifying. These notes are extremely humbling and gratifying to receive. But what really struck me is this, this podcast that I make every week, which I don't necessarily think is, you know, particularly, I don't know, of, of large emotional significance, right? To me, it's, it's many weeks a fun thing that I do. It can have significance beyond what I intended. And I think that's true of a lot of things that uh, people do, that everyone does, right? That, that small things that you do can have a significance beyond what you intend, can mean a lot to people. And it doesn't have to be a podcast. It can be a kind email to film spotting. You know, it can be uh, a word of thanks, a word of gratitude to someone. That something that's insignificant really can mean a lot to other people. And when I think about that, I think about that quote from Adaptation about how, you know, insects and, and flowers, they have no concept of what our universe is like, but because of what they do, everyone on planet Earth is able to exist. So anyway, that's my number one lesson that I've learned from podcasting. Well, and the, and the trick is you can't go into it trying to imbue it with that significance no. or you'll ruin it, right? That, yeah, that's, I think that's a good point. That's the delicacy. And, and it kind of relates to, to my number one, which isn't quite as serious, but it's just this realization I've come to that nothing is harder work than having an easy, casual conversation. And my quote for this is, imagine, um, you know, this in, in Ben Kingsley's sexy beast voice. Preparation, preparation, Wait, preparation. You're not going to do it no, for us? No. Okay. I, I don't get <laughs> over, sudden, I don't get over time for Massacre Theater. So it's only during Massacre Theater. Yeah. Preparation. <laughs> I mean, you've got to do your homework. You've got to come prepared. And then you have to be willing to toss most of that away for the sake 
of just a good talk. Mm -hmm. And that is really difficult to do. I mean, some of the other uh, lessons that I've learned and mentioned here speak to what it takes to pull this show off. But at the end of the day, if it isn't fun to do or to listen to, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. And as we've been mentioning, you'll lose your passion for it as well. And it will become this burden. It will become this thing that you've got to take care of. Uh, and that can be heard. That can be felt on the mm -hmm. other end. You know, you, I'm sure we've all heard other podcasts where we can detect that happening. So yeah, it's achieving that combination, putting in that hard work, and then somehow allowing it to fall away when you're actually behind the microphone. That's something I'm, I'm probably still learning, but I know it's a, it's a crucial mm. part of what we're trying to do. Okay. So my number one, Dave Chen, we certainly didn't coordinate any of our picks, but it might seem like we did after you hear my number one. And I think it might be good actually to make sure we hear this line within its context. Mind if I cool this off? Mm, yeah, I hope so. I don't know what you did to that girl in there, and don't tell me, but it was bound to happen the way you carry on. Live now, pay later, diners club. Why don't you grow up, Baxter? Be a mensch. You know what that means? I'm not sure. A mensch, a human being. So you got off easy this time, so you were lucky. <laughs> no, wasn't I? But you're not out of the woods yet, Baxter, because most of them try it again. Well, you know where I am if you need me. Jack Crucian there as Dr. Dreyfus. Jack Lemon as C.C. Baxter from The Apartment. It is in the film spotting pantheon. And if this is sounding familiar, I mentioned episode 400, Things We Learned from the Movies. My number one then was Dr. Dreyfus's advice, be a mensch, a human being. And you know what? It's my number one again on this list. Back then, I said that what the movie makes us recognize, what Billy Wilder draws our attention to, is that while it's easy to see C.C. Baxter as kind of a victim, he's taken advantage of a little bit, he'd do anything to help Fran Kubelik, he tries to help her, but when the doctor admonishes him the way he does, it seems a little harsh until we really think about how he's tied up into this same kind of scheme of just looking out for himself and compromising his ideals and enabling the bosses at his company, and it makes us realize that we're kind of like C.C. Baxter, maybe more than we'd like to admit. Good enough guy, sure, not a bad guy, but are we truly a good person? Are we a mensch? And how this ties back into doing the show for me and what I've learned is that, like you, Dave, I think I've realized that genuinely the biggest reward lies in what others take from it, which, as we said, you can't really ever predict or plan. No. We are not curing cancer, and more often than not, we're probably just getting the listener through a grind of a workday or doing laundry or cleaning house or they're jogging. But whenever this thing comes to an end, when I look back on it, or even if I'm not around to look back on it, I'm not counting on the biggest reward being that people will say, boy, that review was so profound. That, that take Adam had on the editing and that one sequence was so brilliant. Hopefully it will be in the number of people who express the impact the show had on them in some way. And Dave, we have gotten all those same types of emails over the years, people dealing with health issues or maybe it's a divorce. They were traveling abroad and they were disconnected from their friends and family for an extended period of time and felt like they needed a certain connection and they found it through the show or people say my mom and I or my dad and I or my son or daughter and I, we bonded 
over watching movies together and listening to your show and then talking about the movies. And maybe it's that they realize their passion for film because of this show. And now they write about movies or they curate them or make them or whatever. Hopefully that will be the legacy, which I noted is crazy because when this started, it truly wasn't about the listeners. It wasn't about our own self-gratification either, but it was mostly a selfish endeavor and that it was just an impetus for Sam and me to watch movies and talk about them. But that is what it's become for me. And part of that is being open and available and saying yes a lot and trying to respond to emails and trying to respond to requests and doing meetups and engaging in the face-to-face conversation outside of just the electronic ones that we have. And trying to be a mensch in the way you handle those things. And of course, I fail. I know lots of listeners right now are going, well, I asked Adam for this and didn't get a response. Or boy, you know, I wish he'd responded differently to that. I'm of course not perfect. And I do end up saying no to things or responding in ways that I wish I could take back. But as a wise man once said, I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard. So be a mensch the number one thing I've taken away from not only the movies, but from podcasting about the movies. We would love to hear, I suppose, your thoughts, whether you're a podcaster or any takeaways you've had from listening to our show, from Dave's show, from other podcasts over the years. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Now, Dave, I don't know how the listeners feel about this episode, and who knows, maybe it was too inside baseball, but I'm telling you, because of you and because of your Great thoughts during this top five. This is a this is a pantheon film spotting top five. Yeah, it was great fun. Uh-oh. Yeah, it really uh, was. It, it is for me as well. And I have my, you know, I have a pantheon of film spotting episodes as well. This is up there. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your perspective on Crazy Rich Asians. And we would, of course, love to plug whatever you would like to plug to our audience. Yeah, you can find my work at davechen.net. You can subscribe to my newsletter at davechen.net slash letters. And you can listen to me talking about film every week at slash filmcast.com. Thanks again, Dave. It was really good to talk to you. It has been an honor and a pleasure, gentlemen. Our thanks again to the great Dave Chen. A reminder that at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also at filmspotting.net. Josh, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. You can. We're asking, what is your favorite Ethan Hawke performance? But, 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 it can't be in a Richard Linklater no. movie, and it can't be in a 2018 movie. So what is your favorite non-Richard Linklater, non-2018 Ethan Hawke performance? And if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show, that is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Out in limited release this weekend, Papillon. It's a remake of the 1973 based on a true story prison escape thriller starring Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. This one stars Charlie Hunnam and Rami Malek. Skate Kitchen opens. It's a narrative feature debut from the director of The Wolfpack, Crystal Moselle, about a group of skateboarding teen girls in New York City. In wide release, Axel, or with the periods A-X-L. Axel's a top-secret robotic dog, Josh, and guess what? The secret is out. Pick a lane. Are you going to go Axel or A-X-L? You're, you're calling him in from outside. What do you say? I'm here, going Axel. Come here. Come here, I'm Axel. I'm not going A-X-L. Well, that would be incorrect because robot dogs only respond to AXL. <laughs> also out, the Happy Time Murders, no robot dogs, but there are 
some form of Muppets in that film. We'll see if Josh gets a chance to see that, and we'll talk about it next week. Hey, I might even get to go see it. It is, though, going to be a show devoted to our Golden Brick blowout, devoting some time to some of the most acclaimed movies of the year so far, a couple of them anyway. Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. It opens August 31st in Chicago. Also opening on August 31st, playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center, is a great documentary, Minding the Gap. We'll talk about both, and I think I might be able to squeeze in a few thoughts on a new documentary called John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection. And look, I'm just a sucker for documentaries. I like sports documentaries. I especially love when I can watch kind of mindless documentaries that I don't think are really going to challenge me and I can procrastinate from the heavier stuff I'm supposed to be thinking about. And then I watch this documentary, which is unlike any documentary I've ever seen, certainly unlike any sports documentary I've ever seen. I'll try to explain why on next week's show. All right. I'll have to try to fit that one into as well as maybe a mystery title or two to be named later. We'll see what happens. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to reach some new listeners, and that's a great way to do it. Our music this week is from Ruby Ibarra. It comes from the album Circa 91. More information is at rubyibarra.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.